0: Kristen, I'm going to say something here at the top of the podcast that I never say, and that is, I think we've got a really good show this week.
1: Ooh, yay! Don't you think? It's pretty exciting. I think this we is really some good. We have great guests this week. We do. And we have some chatty
0: movies. And we have some very chatworthy movies. Here's what we've got. We've got uh, the new James Brown biopic, Get On Up. We're going to have Robert Baird, the uh, music editor for Stereophile Magazine. He's going to join us and help us sort through the fact and fiction of James Brown's life. We've got Sharknado 2.
1: Woohoo! I don't yes! know what more you want. Ugh, Sharknado uh, 2.
0: After that, Guardians of the Galaxy, which uh, is the new Marvel superhero film that appears to possibly be on track to be one of the biggest August openings of all time. And then. Um, you spoke to a guy named James Franco. Oh, what's his name again? James, I'm pretty sure J- it's How James Franco. James- yes. P-H-R-A-N-K-O, Franco. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And you spoke to him.
1: I sure did. And Scott Hayes, who stars in his new film,
0: Child of God. So we've got all that and more coming up. But first, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Rafer Guzman, movie critic for Newsday. And I'm Kristen Meinzer, culture producer for The
1: Takeaway. And this is Movie Date. Movie Day.
0: So Kristen, another year, another biopic.
1: It's time, and you love biopics. You know how
0: I love oh, the biopic. I hate them so much. You I do. Just do not I do. not even hate like them. them a little bit. But I like James Brown.
1: Who doesn't love James Brown? What's exactly. not to like?
0: Exactly. Uh, and so here we have the new James Brown biopic, uh, "Get on Up," and this is the new film from Tate Taylor, who did "The Help." Mm-hmm. And of course, it's got uh, Viola Davis and Octavia Spencer from The Help. And it's Chadwick Boseman. From playing, 42. From 42, playing who played Jackie Robinson in 42, here playing yet another iconic figure, the godfather of soul, James Brown. So, uh, as with all biopics, you know, there's, there's usually a mix of fact and fiction, uh, you know. You, Mythology. Myth, exactly. Uh, perhaps a little hagiography. And so. <laughs> You know, it's always fun to kind of get into it and see uh, what's true, what's not. Did, did they capture the James Brown you know? Did, you know, if you're a fan, did they get it right, you know, either by the, either by the spirit or the letter of the law? And so here to uh, help us sort through the James Brown legacy is Robert Baird. He's the music editor at Stereophile Magazine and a James Brown fan expert. Robert, thanks for coming. Good morning. Thank you guys for having me. We're so glad to have you here. Now, tell me, what did you think, first of all, about Chadwick Boseman's performance, because I think this was this was much more than Jackie Robinson, a guy whom most of us probably don't really know. You don't really couldn't really say you know whether that, whether he looks, sounds, acts like Jackie Robinson. Everyone knows James Brown, even if you're not a super fan of James Brown, you know what James Brown looks, acts, and sounds like. What did you think of his performance?
2: You know, having seen James Brown a number of times while he was alive I, I it's an awfully large role, and there's so many contradictions and there was so many different facets to the man. I don't know that anyone could actually get it all, but he certainly in the performance segments, he did really really well. The energy in the performance segments is is right on target after the performance segments in the in the in the sort of straight biography, not so sure that he had it I'm not so sure that he got it all I think My biggest problem was certainly in the beginning, I think James Brown spoke clearly and could clearly enunciate words and somehow this performance doesn't do that and there's an awful lot of problems – at least for me –
0: with the fact that you can't understand the dialogue. Yeah, you uh-huh. you I actually could not understand what Chadwick Boseman was saying.
1: I'm yeah. so glad it wasn't just me because I actually – I've always struggled when there's accents and, you know, like I, I couldn't watch the Lord of the Rings movies without the subtitles. That's how bad I am. <laughs> so watching this, I'm like, am I the only one who doesn't understand what he's saying a third of the time?
2: Well, you remember when Marlon Brando put the cotton roll yes. in his mouth in Godfather? Okay. It was very similar to It's kind of this thing that he's got – you can't <laughs> – yeah. I, I, I don't know. But then I look at pictures of James Brown. He's got those teeth and those teeth and that gorgeous smile and you think wait a minute this isn't the way he looked this right. isn't the way he spoke <laughs> <laughs> Right,
0: right uh, I actually have to hand it to him I thought he did though a, a pretty good job of of doing James Brown I thought he had the James Brown role rolled down pretty well and he, and he plays him from a teenager all the way up until he's 60 and I, you know, I felt like he really did a good job especially in some of those uh, later sequences when you've got that when James Brown had turned into this, into this kind of Weird sort of um, pomaded elder statesman type guy, and he had that kind of sort of slight hitch in his walk, you know, and kind of stiff, kind of stiff gait he'd use. And I yeah, thought that he looked pretty good. Well,
1: I think physically he had it down, and when he was on stage, Robert, I agree with you; those scenes are really those well, are, he, th- he, th- those scenes are amazing on stage. And the
2: shuffle and the and the, the splits and the bouncing back up and the microphone yeah. working the mic stand—he had all of that cold.
1: It was unbelievable. I actually just. They, they were electrifying moments. They were fantastic. But then when he was off the stage, I wondered how much of that was Chadwick Boseman's fault and how much of that was the filmmakers because the filmmakers True. decided yeah. we're going to have him break the third wall.
0: Yeah. And, oh, uh, the fourth wall. Look, yeah. I, when I, he speaks to the camera. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: And, and there was a lot of that and there was a lot of back and forth messing with time and a flashback within a flashback within a
2: flashback. And, I, you know, Rafe and I discussed this coming out of the movie. I think... If Had they gone for a smaller slice of James Brown's life and had they gone for more sort of emblematic resonant moments as opposed to let's show him from birth to death kind of thing, which is pretty much what the film is, I think they could have – it could have been a lot – this film skims along the surface too much for me. It could have gone a lot deeper. There could have been a lot more meaning. You could have shown a lot more than just tell, which is what the – The script did a lot. These little scenes they inserted, like, okay, he's a wife-beater. So here's six minutes of him being a wife-beater. Then we move on to the next too right. much too much episodic stuff, not enough flow, not enough narrative,
0: but you were saying that this is a very large role, and I agree you know and when you look at james brown 's career, I mean the guy you know he he went through as many phases as Bob Dylan or david Bowie and and he had, yeah. he had this you know this fifty year or something career right Absolutely. so so here 's the question you know we're, we're we all know who James Brown is, and this movie is trying to um trying to tell us, and my question to you it would be what why do we know James Brown and what is his legacy? What What is it that he has wrought that, yeah. that, we're, that, that we know him from?
2: Well, first and foremost, of course, the entertainer thing. I mean, the man was electrifying is the overused word when it comes to James Brown, but it's absolutely true. The man was an electrifying entertainer. He was, you know, he, the, the amount of energy he expended on stage and then they started building in drama like with the capes, you know, yes. that was a fabulous touch that they sort of came to, I think, organically on stage. But so first and foremost, he's a great entertainer. There was no – nobody ever came out of a James Brown show and said, wow, I didn't get my money's worth. Right. The man <laughs> definitely was the hardest working man in show That's business. That's right. That's I right. Mean, he was Mr. Dynamite. He was, you know, soul brother number one. He was the hardest working man in show business. Secondly, you know, he's a deconstructionist with the music. I mean he boiled the music down to these basic – building blocks and you know you look so there was one scene in the movie where the rehearsal scene in new orleans yes where he is saying you know he's teaching people their parts basically and you have a bass player who's playing three notes then just stands there for four for four measures then plays three more notes well it seems very odd but when it came together it was fabulous
3: if it sounds good and it feels good then it's musical so play it like i say play it hit it
2: And that's sort of James Brown. I mean, there really is no music like James Brown music. In the very beginning of the film, he says, everything you hear today has me in it. Well, absolutely true. Absolutely true.
0: So ultimately, do you feel, Robert, like like this movie captured anything of James Brown? Do you feel like it it did a good job? Do you feel like it tarnished the legend? Did it uphold it?
2: I think if you don't know the man and you don't know the music, The live performances in the film, which they recreate several really iconic ones, the one at the Apollo in 1962, the one in Boston in 1968, um, the one in Paris at the end of the film. I think all of those are fabulous bits. And I think if you don't know James Brown, I mean, you have to sort of step out of the headset of, gee, I know James Brown. If you don't know James Brown, you walk in and you see those segments, then you go, wow, the bio part of it is a whole nother ballgame.
0: Right. <laughs> and So, so just Kristen... watch the
1: musical numbers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah, I mean, just shut your
0: eyes during the rest of it. Um, but, you know.
1: Take a little naps. <laughs>
0: so, Christian, so what do you think?
1: I just – I loved the musical performance part so much that to me they almost made the movie worth watching just yeah. for those scenes because they're so spectacular. Yeah. The rest of it was kind of a mess. I, I really just would like to have all of those musical numbers in one spot and that spot to be a concert hall and the person on stage to really be James Brown and me to be in the front row. That's right. really what I'd like. So, I would say it was like a so-so date. There there are some highs on this date, but mostly it's kind of a forgettable date.
0: I thought it was actually a pretty bad date. I thought oh, it was really? yeah, I thought it was an infuriating cinematic experience to sit through <laughs> all these sequences that were that were I was going to say stitched together but they're really more like scotch tape together and it's just it's you know we start out in 1988 then it's 1968 then he's a child in in like the depression era south and then we're back to 1964 where his fame hasn't quite risen yet and then we're back into some other phase of his career there are flash forwards within the flashbacks that don't make any sense mm-hmm. and i found it all totally maddening and infuriating and I'm going to make one last final complaint. What kind of James Brown movie has no sex in it? This movie has almost no sex in it whatsoever. And I just feel like it's James Brown, people. The title of the movie, Get On Up. Doesn't that come from "Sex the Sex Machine song? You I mean. Think.
2: You would think. Well, the one, sec, the one sex bit in the film is, is very simplistic. And, you know, again, it's sort, of, it's sort of script writing 101A, which is the mother and the father have a fight. Then they have sex. James Brown and his wife have a fight, then they have sex. Yes, that's true. Okay, so it echoes, right? I, I got it. Okay, yes. That was, a, that was an easy to get point. Um, again, though, this is, this is like James Brown's bio boiled down to nonsense. I mean,
0: it, it, it's an, true. You episodic can't... nonsense. Robert Baird, uh, music editor of Stereophile Magazine, talking with us about James Brown and the new biopic, Get On Up. Thanks, Robert. Thanks, guys. I, feel good. I knew that I would
1: feel good I knew that I would now Rayford's such a big week with movies but I think that maybe the biggest movie of all this week has got to be Sharknado 2
0: You know you've got a there's a case to be made Yes there's it's a called, case to be made
1: Its full title is Sharknado 2 colon, the second one <laughs>
0: You can't say they don't have a sense of humor over there at the Sci-Fi Channel.
1: Love it. And did you see the first Sharknado? I did not. All right. Well, let me just get you up to speed here. Thank you. Even if you don't see the first Sharknado, you can just follow the second one. First one was in L.A. Second one is in New York City, our hometown here. And what's happened is the world's uh, ecosystems are so screwed up that now these severe weather changes and storms are so intense that they can actually pick up sharks out of the ocean and drop them by the thousands on large cities, so you 'll just be walking down the street and you 'll look up at the sky and it won 't just be rain and hail coming
0: at you but a shark take that Republican climate change deniers <laughs> if that doesn 't convince you what will here 's a clip. Giant subway rat trying to eat the train. Maybe a hipster fell on the tracks. They're pretty late.
1: Notably, Ian Zeering from Beverly Hills 90210, who's the star of this film, his character's name is Finn Shepard.
0: Oh, that's good. Isn't that awesome? That's really yes. good. And he was in the first as well. Yes. And yeah. we also
1: have Tara his wife. And in this movie, we also have Vivica Fox, who's playing another kind of side love interest.
0: That's a stellar cast. And
1: everybody you can imagine has a cameo in this. The, the first big cameo is Kelly Osborne playing a flight attendant. Of course, she gets eaten. We have okay. Jared the Subway Sandwich Man. We have Perez Hilton, who of course gets eaten. <laughs> we have Billy Ray Cyrus. We have, we have Judd Hirsch... Playing a taxi driver. That's you... right, Judd Hirsch from Taxi. We have we have the guy who played Striker, the pilot in Airplane, playing an airplane pilot.
0: Mere seconds ago, you said these were big cameos, <laughs> Kristen.
1: <laughs> My favorite line from this movie is, "I know you're scared. I'm scared too, because they're sharks, and sharks are scary." <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's good. I like it.
1: That's Ian Zuring standing on top of a car in the middle of Manhattan traffic trying to rally New Yorkers to fight these sharks. You're not going to let these sharks kill you. You're going to open your trunks, and everyone opens their trunks in New York traffic. And, of course, it's not just baseball bats in their trunks. It's everything from machetes to machine guns. Oh, good. And then one guy just has like 800 chainsaws, and he just keeps throwing them up at the Sharknado. And, ah, you know, okay. you got to kill those sharks. Okay. And sometimes the best weapon is a chainsaw.
0: Well, and how was it? How'd you like it, Kristen? It was even better than the first. Now,
1: I really liked the first one because it was praise. so ridiculous. But this one was even better. The lines were more ridiculous. The cameos were sillier. And also, the music was terrific in it. They had bands that kind of sounded like the Ramones, only they were singing songs about sharks. <laughs> and then, like
0: every kind of. I'm sorry I missed it. It was so
1: good. But you know what? You didn't really miss it. It's playing
0: all week. Is that right? Yes.
1: It premiered on Wednesday night, 9 p.m. Eastern time. But it's going to keep playing for another week or so. For all those lucky viewers across the country, you could watch it back to back to back for a week now. It's so <laughs> worth watching. I would say Outstanding Date. Maybe the best date I've been on in a month.
0: All right. Well, I see another uh, poster pull quote in your future quote. <laughs> Even better than the first one. Quote, <laughs> Kristen Meinzer, comma, WNYC. All oh, right. I hope
1: you're right. That's so good. I can hardly wait for Sharknado 3. Go, 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 go. Run away from the Sharknado. It's your greatest foe, foe, foe. Don't want to get eaten by Sharknado.
0: All right. Well, let's talk about Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, do we have to? Well, I think this actually could be the biggest movie of the week. Not bigger than Sharknado 2. I think this is going to be possibly the biggest movie. uh, as, As I have read, this could be the biggest August opening. Wow. Yes. Um, and this is part of the Marvel Universe. It's uh, from Marvel Disney. It's based on a comic book uh, launched originally way back in 1969. Um, but this is a very different version than the, <laughs> the one that was launched way back then. Uh, it's basically about a gang of intergalactic misfits who come together and they have to save the universe. I don't think, I don't think you need a whole lot more detail than that. Uh, Chris Pratt plays Peter Quill. He's the earthling leader of the gang, and the rest of them are Bradley Cooper as the voice of Rocket Raccoon. He's mm-hmm. a genetically modified raccoon. Uh, Vin Diesel as the voice of Groot, who is essentially a tree. somewhat talking tree. <laughs> uh, Zoe Saldana as Gamora. She is a green-skinned alien in a living weapon, quote-unquote. And then Dave Bautista, who's a uh, pro wrestler who plays Drax the Destroyer. And together they're going to be the Guardians of the Galaxy. Here's a clip.
4: I have part of a plan.
0: What percentage of a plan do you have?
4: You don't get to
0: ask questions after the nonsense you pulled on Nowhere. I just
4: saved Quill. We've already established that you destroying the ship that I'm on is not saving me. When did we establish Like three seconds ago! I wasn't listening to it. I was thinking of something else.
1: Now, Rafer, I know you were looking forward to a comedy superhero action movie, but I personally felt that a lot of
0: the comedy was...
1: Wah, womp womp <laughs>
0: Really? Okay. Yeah.
1: It was just so cornball. It was I, – Oh, I, I like I, what?
0: Like what are you I, thinking of?
1: I just felt like the tone was all off. I felt like I was watching a cross between a Saturday morning cartoon and a Doctor Who vintage sort of – no hmm. offense to our British listeners who love British humor <laughs> – but it just wasn't working for me at all. The whole time I just was rolling my eyes. And I, I I don't know if it's because I'm a female. I don't know if it's because I have good sense. I have no idea. But it was a lot of these jokes were just falling flat. Everything kind of looked goofy to me,
0: not, Go- well, not it's polished. A, I mean,
1: it just, yeah.
0: It's about a tree and a talking raccoon. How, it's a, <laughs> it's, I think it's supposed to look a little goofy, right?
1: It is. But goofy versus well uh, a well-polished, good humor. I wanted it to be like a, a polished, good humor movie, and it was just kind of a cornball movie to me.
0: Yeah, I think this is essentially—it's not really a superhero movie. It's almost not even really a sci-fi movie. It's an action comedy. It's a—it's a pretty much a straight-up action comedy. That's how it's structured, uh, and it takes some of the—it takes some of its humor from the superhero genre. But when you get right down to it this is uh, you know it's like uh, I don't it's almost like a Bill Murray movie it's like it's like stripes oh, or meatballs no, or something don't say yeah. that about I love Bill yeah, Murray. It's, it's a, it's and a I misfit. did not love this movie though. Well, I I just think that it's a it's a it's a misfit comedy, right? It's the it's the it's the gang of losers who triumph in the end and I thought actually it was really fresh and funny and smart and I thought it was really enjoyable. I loved the uh, the classic pop rock soundtrack. That, well, uh, yes,
1: having a great soundtrack with his little Walkman. Because he's got yeah. this Walkman from the 1980s. His right. mother gave it to him. Right. And we always hear the music that reminds him of Earth and of his mother. Yeah. And, and But I feel that you were falling sucker to one of the oldest tricks in the movie book. Let's just put in a soundtrack from your youth and you're going to fall for
0: this terrible movie. Well, but I think this movie has... I think what's interesting about it, though, is that you have never seen this kind of—you've never seen that technique in a futuristic superhero sci-fi fantasy film with a 1970s sort of pop soundtrack— I thought was really funny and really clever, and um, you could say it was a little overdone. I guess my if I had any complaint about this movie, it would be a little bit like my complaint about the Lego movie, which was that at times it got a little too carried away with itself, mm, and at a times it, very, it, it could have it sort of it could have reined it in a little bit, but I thought it was actually really fun, and I was so happy to see a movie that a superhero movie that poked fun at itself and had like a, a just a good kind of loosey goosey freewheeling energy. I thought it was a great date.
1: Mm, I thought it was a pretty bad date. Bad date. You yeah, say. bad I, date. Just too corny. I felt like I was on a date with a thirteen-year-old boy who kept on quoting
0: Monty Python to me. Well, you kind of were. I mean, it's, it is it is a it is a PG-13 movie. It's not it's not R. It's not going to be Pulp Fiction. It's yeah. definitely it's for a younger crowd. I don't want to be on that date.
1: Really? No. I, I I'm gonna advise all of our listeners who are in junior high school go out and see this have a great time but those of us who are not in junior high i just know not ah, a good date for me interesting not a good date for me
0: well there you go all right split opinion on that This is
1: a man's world. let's move on to our special interview this week We have a movie out this week called Child of God based on the Cormac McCarthy novel. And James Franco didn't just co-write the movie. He directed it and he appears in it. It stars Scott Hayes. And I was lucky enough to sit down with James Franco and Scott Hayes this week. And the first thing I wanted to know was really about James Franco's choice of Cormac McCarthy for this adaptation and how long he's been a Cormac McCarthy fan. And so this is what he said.
4: The first Cormac McCarthy book I read was Blood Meridian. Um, and then I remember I read No Country for Old Men when the Coen brothers were doing it, and I auditioned for that, but I was—I think I was too young to play the Josh Brolin role. And then um, I eventually went back to UCLA to finish my bachelor's degree. I had, I had dropped out to um, go to acting school and become an actor and then went back. <clears throat> and I took a class taught by a poet named Cal Bedient um, that was in, entirely on Cormac McCarthy. So I, we read almost all of his books in that, in that course. And um, that's when I really came to appreciate Cormac's work and, and got a very much deeper understanding of the arc of his, of his career and um, kind of what he was about from, from book to book.
1: Now, this particular story, like a lot of Cormac McCarthy stories, is pretty dark and it's raw, and it's particularly difficult because it really only has one character who's carrying the whole movie. The whole weight is on your shoulders, Scott. You're playing Lester Ballard, the protagonist, and Lester does some things that I think a lot of people would consider pretty despicable. Mm -hmm. There's necrophilia, your kidnapping bodies. Um, Was it a challenge to try and create the right balance because... You want this character in some way for people to keep on watching and not be so repulsed that they're going to turn away. So I'm curious, did you see this character, both of you, as somebody who um, we're supposed to identify with, somebody that we should look at as a warning, someone we should feel sorry for? How did you want this character to come across to people?
3: The way Cormac approaches the novel is it's very much stark. and It's very much, you know, Cormac's writing is it doesn't lend a lot of itself to the inner workings of what Lester's feeling. So a lot of times when I'm reading the novel, is, is I would try to approach in the sense of just thinking about what is this man going through? And there's certain elements, I think, that are really at play of feeling really alone and wanting to connect and wanting to be loved and wanting to have a family. And I, I'm sure that he didn't want his father to commit suicide. I, he wanted to stay on the land, but he was ostracized from society, cast away. And wasn't shown love. And never had a girlfriend. So I think in living that stuff out, those are human desires that I think every human has is to want to feel connected or belong to a group or belong to a society and feel love or connected to you know, friends and loved ones. He didn't get that opportunity. And that is something I wanted to convey. You know, A lot is it a child of God, much like yourself perhaps, is there's certain fundamental elements I think we all have which is to want to be loved. And I, let, I didn't hinder any of that. I let that all just be there. Um, so it wasn't just, I'm going to kill this person because I, you know, I need a body. It was, there's, a, there's a need there. There's a desire. There's an obsession that's happening that just evolves over time.
1: And James, sometimes there's almost a sense of humor at points in the movie. Can you tell us about how you put that in there and why you put that in there?
4: Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> what I what I found out when I started adapting the book is that – or what I realized is that when you normally have a character like this, he is – being tracked down by the detectives, or if it's a slasher film, he is chasing you know the young teens that are the heroes, but he's the villain. Rarely do you have a character like this who is at the center of the film in such a, a prominent way. So my goal was not to make Lester sympathetic. In no way do I condone his behavior. But... Um, it's within the the realm of art and so for me um i'm not making a moralistic tale i'm examining human behavior and i'm using um a monster to talk about more universal human um uh things but if i'm going to use a monster like this i want i don't want to repel the audience i want to both I want to shock them, you know, so we'll shock them with certain things, but I want them to to stay with us. I don't want them to kind of shut off emotionally from him. And comedy is such a powerful tool for bringing an audience onto the side of a character. It's just, you know, if, if an audience can laugh with a character, you've won them over. It, it it's It's just an amazing kind of weapon. So,
1: James, you've written books and screenplays. You're a painter, directing, acting. You do a lot of different things. And I think some people look at your career and think, what's going on? Is there an end goal in all of this? Do you have an end goal, something that you're aiming for in the end? Or do you just want to do as many things as humanly possible? And is there any actual uh, trajectory that you're following here?
4: I mean, you know, we live in a postmodern age and, and, and form is so fluid. And, um, there's a weird thing where a lot of people are just stuck in these old ideas of, uh, a creative person needs to stay with one thing. I, I see, um, form matching content and I'm, I'm just interested in a lot of different things. And so the goal is not to um, put one more feather in my cap each time I do something new. It's just to explore. And it just makes me a more satisfied and more rounded artist.
1: That was James Franco and Scott Hayes talking about their new film, Child of God. As usual, we're going to wrap things up with some trivia. Yes. So last week, in honor of films that take place in the 1920s, like Magic in the Moonlight, we played a clip of a movie that takes place in the 1920s, and we asked you to tell us what this film is. Here's the clip.
0: Hello, guppies. What colossal trumpery is taking place at Vanity Fair?
3: Well, Mr. Sherwood was replaced last week by the woman who gives music lessons to Conde Nast's daughter. A woman, I might add, who's so full of charm she's practically panting with it.
0: <laughs> and then Mrs. Parker was fired because. Because I presume Vanity Fair is a magazine of no opinion, and she has plenty. And Rafer, the correct answer is. It's Mrs. Parker in the Vicious Circle,
1: starring the wonderful Jennifer Jason Leigh as nobody. Dorothy Parker. Right,
0: nobody got it right.
1: The movie's twenty years old. Maybe it was. <laughs> I don't know. It was kind of an indie hit, but I don't know if it was a big hit. Other than that, was I it? I guess not.
0: I oh. guess not. I thought. I thought everyone kind of knew that movie. But okay, all right, Kristen, let's let's give people an easier one this week.
1: I don't know if this is an easier one, but I'm just I think gonna, it is. I'm just going to ask it. So James Brown. He's been featured on nearly 300 film soundtracks, a lot of soundtracks. We love that James Brown. So in honor of Get On Up, we're asking you, in addition to those 300 film soundtracks, about his acting career. Now, he hasn't acted in a lot of movies. No, he has not. No, but we're going to play a clip of one of the movies he did act in.
0: What is that movie? People, what is that movie?
1: (laughs) I bet you guys know the answer. (laughs) Give us a call at 5717movies.
0: Or you can visit our website at facebook.com slash podcast.